You've heard the stories, people receiving Social Security payouts after they've died. It all stems from whether Social Security Administration has the latest and most complete death records. The problem is those are administered by the states. Last year, Congress asked the National Academy of Public Administration to examine the sources of data for Social Security and how well it can access them. Here with what they found, study co-author Barbara Boberg. Ms. Boberg, good to have you on. Well, thank you for inviting me, Tom. This is an important topic. Yes, this comes up year after year, and always the press makes a big story of dead people getting Social Security benefits. I mean, the dollars in the grand scheme of things are not that big, but it's one of those problems that you would think would have been rubbed out decades ago. Simply get the data from the states, period, the end. What's the issue here? Well, the issue is not really at the SSA with regard to use of the data. It's broader use by the federal government. So death data are really critical to program integrity, by which I mean, if you're administering a benefit program, you want to make sure that the money is going only to people who are eligible for the benefit and only in the amount for which they're eligible. And overpaying is really an issue, as I know you know from some of your prior broadcasts. And when the press puts out a story about how, you know, they paid this dead person, everyone gets very upset and it's very embarrassing. And you never want that to happen unless it's a survivor benefit. Right. In some ways, even though it might be small dollars compared to all of the federal improper payments, it has the effect of eroding people's faith that the government can administer anything properly if it sends money to the deceased. That's right. It sounds incompetent to people. Back in the 80s, Social Security was asked to make sure that they create a death file and make sure that they check records against that. And initially, they were getting data from funeral parlor directors, families, sort of off-the-cuff kind of data. And several years ago, they were told they needed to make that information public. And since they owned the information, they did that. And you could subscribe to the federal death files. But over time, they started getting it electronically, too, from the state vital records offices, which is much faster. It's much more reliable. And of course, Social Security checks the data when they get it. So the name and the Social Security number don't match. It kicks out and goes back to the Vital Records Office for correction. They have a much more complete file. But because those data are owned by the Vital Records Offices, which are mainly, there are 57 of them, they now cannot just give it to others. So increasingly, the file that people might get via subscription or some entities in the federal government use is much smaller and less comprehensive. Well, let me ask you why the vital records that are maintained by states, I would think that's public information at the state level. Is there an issue with it being public information at the federal level, or is it, in fact, public at the state level? That's a tricky question because you do not have privacy rights as a dead person. But when you go to get a birth certificate, a death certificate, things like that from vital records, in nearly all jurisdictions, you need to pay for it. There is a fee for that. And that is because vital records offices get something around 70% of their funding from fees. And they are allowed to charge the federal government for that information. And SSA works with a representative of the 57 jurisdictions to negotiate a price. So they pay them. And then SSA can also 
under current law, share that information with 10 federal agencies that manage benefit programs. And they can charge them for what it costs SSA to prepare the file and all that sort of the administrative stuff, but they can't charge them for what they pay the vital records offices. And the VROs maintain ownership. And in fact, that was a fundamental piece of our work was to say, we are gonna presume, and the federal government presumes that the VROs own these data. The, so the question is, what does it cost to get them and how extensively can they be shared? Then you weren't necessarily looking at just social security's issue with completeness of data, but the fact of whether they can share that data from these VROs, vital records offices, throughout these 10 agencies that they're entitled to by law. But Tom, the plot thickens because there is a federal agency within the Treasury Department called Do Not Pay. And its whole thing is preventing and detecting improper payments across the federal government. That's their motto. But they don't have access to the full death records because they're not technically a benefit paying agency. So hence this issue, when Congress passed the 2021 Appropriations Act, they put in a provision not only to require this study, as you noted at the beginning of our conversation, but also to, at the end of 2023, SSA needs to provide that file to the do not pay entity which will make their job much more effective, much easier. And they will start to charge the agencies who receive the data, not only for the administrative cost of preparing the file, but also their share of what it costs SSA to get the information from the states. But that only goes for three years. And then if nothing else is done, it will revert back to the current system. Hence, they asked us to take a look at how is all this working? What are the issues? and what options could we provide for the future? We're speaking with Barbara Boberg. She's panel chair of the study panel at the National Academy of Public Administration looking at the data issues with Social Security. Let me just back up a moment, though. If SSA yearly is sort of ridiculed, if you will, for paying out benefits to the deceased, it seems like there's a completeness issue with what they're getting from the states to begin with. Did you look at that? It's very, very tiny. Right. The number of mistakes in the file. And I think that when you hear about this at SSA, it's just so unusual. I can't remember the last time I heard something like that that involved SSA because they clean the data. There isn't. We even looked at whether people are reported as dead who are not dead. And if that happens to you, you go to a Social Security field office sure. and show who you are and So you can actually count those instances. It's a very tiny, tiny number. The issue then is for that data, which is mostly complete, pretty good, clean, to be able to go to do not pay at Treasury and from there to a lot of the agencies that also have benefits programs that at this point don't get the benefit from that data. Well, and the question is, who is going to send it to those agencies? And that's where we looked at these different options. In all options, Social Security gets the data because they need it and they have a system and they can clean it and they get the data. But Social Security could give it to do not pay and then do not pay could be the central entity that distributes the data. I mean, that's one of the options to consider. And what are some of the other options to consider and what did you feel was the best option? 
Well, we didn't make recommendations. Congress was very clear that they wanted our options and not our recommendations. We looked at actually five options, but we really only analyzed in detail three of them. So the first one is just doing what we're doing now, standing pat. The second one is what we just talked about is having do not pay centrally. And the third one is to have the central distributor be the entity that represents the vital records offices in these negotiations, which is NASIS, the National Association for Public Health Statistics and Information Systems. And they have a couple of different systems that have the basic death data as well as other things, you know, cause of death, things like that. So we looked at having them at centrally. We looked at a couple of other options that involved the data going directly to do not pay from NASIS or having the agencies negotiate with the states themselves. And we thought particularly the latter one just seemed inefficient. The one with sending it both to Social Security and to do not pay just seemed like an overlap and duplication to use a GAO term. Yeah, so basically uh, then it seemed like the most viable options are all the VROs send their data somewhere, and that somewhere then distributes it to everyone that needs it in the federal government. Correct. And an issue for this process is what does it cost the federal government to get the data? Let me ask you about that. Is it this cost to Social Security at this point to get that data? Are we talking about hundreds of thousands, millions or billions of dollars? What's the scale of dollars here? We're talking millions, not billions, not billions, but millions. You know, there's several million deaths a year. And if the data comes in right away, they get $4 a record. It's not a huge amount of money compared to other things in the federal government. So they can't quite negotiate it down to, say, a buck a body. Only if they're not providing it timely or if they're not providing it electronically. But there is a negotiation. It's not really based on cost because, as I'm sure you're aware, there aren't a lot of government entities that are doing cost accounting on this particular thing in the VROs. So they don't really know what they can't really separate it from their overall budget. I do want to note that on the state side, they feel like they might be undercompensated if all these federal agencies are going to get their data. But they also worry about data security. There are legal requirements in some of the states for assuring data security, and they can't really assure it if they don't even know who it's going to, or they don't have the ability to have any kind of internal control. But essentially, the purpose of the study as envisioned by Congress was to find a way for all federal agencies that pay out benefits to benefit from the data of knowing who is deceased and thereby cutting their improper payments? Yes, and certainly to consider whether there are other types of federal agencies who need the information. For example, we found that the Office of Child Support and Enforcement does not have access because they don't actually pay benefits. They collect child support, but it would be useful to have access to the death files for any kinds of investigations they were doing. But that wouldn't qualify currently. So there are some of those issues as well. So the Napa study now then goes to Congress. That was your client in this. And then it would be up to Congress to decide what, if any, legislative solutions it would have 
to getting this data in some efficient manner and promulgating it throughout the government in some efficient manner. Well, and I'm hoping that this will prove useful to them and they will do something here. I think that this is an important intergovernmental program, but as with all intergovernmental efforts, it's complicated. And you've got the divergent issues and priorities of the federal government and 57 other entities. It's a thorny problem to deal with, but I feel pretty confident that we provided some tools for them to address. And that this is just, it may seem like not a big deal, death files, but it's really important to program integrity and assuring money is spent the way it should be spent. Barbara Boberg is chair of the study panel at the National Academy of Public Administration looking at death records and how they're used. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you for showing an interest in this topic. I think it's really important. We'll post this interview along with a link to the Social Security Report at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After an exemplary career as a former executive at the FBI, focused on policy and strategy, Sasha O'Connell, Ph.D., is guiding future federal leaders as the executive in residence in the School of Public Affairs at American University. Sasha joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss her exciting career, the future of the federal workforce, and the lessons she's learned along the way. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Sasha O'Connell. Sasha is an executive in residence in the Department of Justice, Law, and Criminology at the School of Public Affairs at American University and spent the majority of her career at the FBI and most recently as the organization's chief policy advisor, science and technology and the Section Chief of Office and Policy for the FBI's Deputy Director. Sasha, welcome. Jane, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Can you give us an example of someone early in your career that motivated you, and then and, and how did what did that look like? Sure, absolutely. So it sounds almost cliche, but it was the dining room table. So I grew up um, with a stepfather who spent 30 years at the Veterans Administration at the VA, and he talked at the dinner table. He started as a social worker and then sort of rose up into management, administration, and leadership. And his stories, right, and his approach really, really impacted me. My mom, interestingly, ended up in a career in public service. She was a prosecutor. She's currently a retired state superior court judge. Um, But she had a big career change also in her 40s. She went back to law school in her 40s. So getting all of that in the mix at a young age at the dinner table really, really impacted me um, in really specific ways. Yeah, that's amazing. My my father was part of um, the generation that took um, President Kennedy's call to action. And he took that to heart, and he went and worked at the Department of Interior and a number of other places in federal service. So it's, it's catching when, when you're around it. You've held a number of leadership roles at the FBI, which is historically a male-dominated organization. What skills or traits helped you most as you navigated that? It's such a, it's an interesting and challenging yeah. sort of situation and question. One, I don't think I still am reflecting on. I've been out of the FBI about six years, and I'm sort of still thinking about it. I think the bottom line was when I was there, and I really grew up there. Um, I didn't, I didn't know any different. I grew up with male cousins and brothers, and you know, it was sort of a continuation of of my existence. So it did 
you know, in retrospect, it, it was a really unique situation, but it didn't necessarily feel that way for me at the time. I think staying mission-focused, staying not about me, staying flexible in terms of problem-solving all helped me. I will say there's resources today that weren't there when I was there, or certainly when I was starting out. There's a lot of affinity groups for women in national security, women in federal law enforcement. And I will say I think I would have really benefited from access to those kind of resources as I was coming up. Um, I had both incredible mentors, men and women, um, women across the organization who I became very close with who were incredible supports, not just getting the job and starting out, but sort of matriculating through. But again, I'm really sort of proud of and involved in some of the work of those external organizations that bring women across government, um, executive women in government, and those kind of organizations together, because I think it is really, really helpful um, as one moves through. Yeah, we we actually work with a, a number of those too, and and go to their events and conferences and support them because it's important. How has your leadership style developed or changed over the years? Well, I think I've gotten a little more confident in it. Right, the seeds were there at that dining room table. One thing um, that carried through that I learned from my stepdad was to focus on the process. He would talk at dinner about big ideas or big changes and how to get from here to there was part of his day job, something he thought about explicitly, was getting other people on board, getting that stakeholder engagement, getting other people to think it was their idea if that was required. And that's something I started out with as a gift, right, that kind of approach. And then I got confidence in that, and then I added things. I will say, as I moved on, my appreciation for taking care of is maybe the wrong word, but really focusing on the people who work with you and for you in some instances um, you know, making sure that they have what they need to be successful in a tactical way. But then also something I definitely learned at the FBI as I went along is, you know, the importance of creating an environment that is supportive and inspiring. You know, we joke about it, but food has played a pretty serious role um, in my leadership style over time. Um, I learned from great mentors. I worked with Bill Estevez at the FBI who had a full-scale cappuccino maker at his cubicle, right, and would host coffee hour, and you'd see the steam rising across the cubicles. Um, I worked with a, a great friend who used to carry hot frittatas for breakfast celebrations or on, the, on the metro, right, in one of those sort of coolie bags. Um, and so I've sort of, I think it's been additive in terms of learning, getting confidence in my approach, and then adding these pieces as I go that I've certainly learned from mentors and colleagues. And clearly you never let anything get in your way. You were mission-focused, as you mentioned, and you just got the job done no matter what was in front of you. Well, I wish, I wish, Jane, it was, it was that easy. I mean, I think we had a lot of success. Um, one thing has always been my approach when starting out as a leader, too, is to solve near-term problems. I always say sort of deliver short and then you can push them long, right? So we've, we don't always succeed in those long-term goals or those, you know, sort of blue-sky ideas as leaders we want to achieve. Um, but we deliver on those short-term pieces, right? And you get that buy-in from the stakeholders. And then often you can push toward those bigger dreams, hopes, aspirations, and goals. Um, I would like to say I was 100% on both fronts. <laughs> I'm not sure your characterization is 100% accurate there, but I'll take it um, in, this, in this sense. Looking back, what, what's one piece of advice you might have given your younger self when you first started? Yeah, it's, it's interesting today, too, working with students, I get that chance, right, to give my, essentially, my younger self um, advice every day. And one thing we talk a lot about, and I wish I had thought more explicitly about, 
is really, it's about calibration, right? And so I always think Emeril Lagasse would say, like, a stove has dials for a reason, right? It's not like all hot or all cold. And I think it's the same here. In some ways, in my career, I had to learn to tone it down, right? And to, you know, certainly at the FBI, sometimes you need to take that back seat at a meeting and wait to be invited to the table. And that's really the appropriate way to build rapport, relationships, and trust. Other times, I needed to learn to tune it up, right, to up the volume a little bit. Um, I had a wonderful boss, Dave Schlendorf, who we were in a meeting together with big bosses at the FBI once, and I was working for Dave. And we left the meeting, and we were walking back to the office, and I made a point. I don't even remember what the point was now. And he stopped in the hall and said, why didn't you say that in the meeting? You're not helping me, right? Telling me this now, now I have to go back and fix this. And I realized, so well, sometimes you have to tone it down, sometimes you have to tone it up, and that modulation, that sort of volume control about when to lean in and out, if you will, um, that's, you know, even just thinking about that explicitly for folks starting out, I think is really helpful because it's not one size fits all. Right. I I totally agree and understand that it isn't one size fits all. And a lot of leadership is described in, bumper stickers, sayings, and I don't think that's realistic. I think it's situationally dependent, and you have to be self-aware and aware of your circumstances to adjust. That's well said. You're training the next generation, or helping to train them, federal leaders through AU's School of Public Affairs. How, How do we encourage, how do you encourage young people to answer the call of federal service? You know, I'm so lucky at AU. We, we draw in, right, students who are primed for this um, and who are passionate when they walk in our doors. Even with that population, you know, there, there are headwinds, right? USA Jobs, right? Just even getting educated, these pieces. So, so helping with that is a whole set of work. I'm also really passionate about, as you point out, reaching out to a diversity of folks who haven't even thought about these careers as careers. I had a conversation with a young woman the other day, and she was talking about law school. It's, I'm, I'm fully supportive of law school. And I said, have you ever thought about a career in, in federal service? And she said, uh, isn't that for old people? <laughs> I said, uh, <laughs> um, okay. So, you know, I mean, there's an education to do, right? Clearly, she's never seen the softball leagues, you know, down in the mall or kickball or any of the fun we all have in town where we certainly did when we were younger. But I, I really try, again, podcasts like this and other venues to put myself out there and really talk about what it's like, the opportunities I had at the FBI to be in the middle of the mission space and to explain that the federal government needs all kinds of skills, right, and diversity of thought, right, and diversity of people. So so there's that sort of working with the group that's primed for us, and we need to help them get over those barriers, get in and then stay and stay um, engaged and passionate and then there's reaching those new audiences. And there's a lot of work both places, but it's a lot of fun to work with young folks who are passionate about it. So I'm really lucky in my current job. And career civil service is a great path if somebody wants to take it. Our board is 100% SES level career civil servants. They are all dedicated. They have a real passion for what they're doing. They could go work anywhere, but they choose federal service. And there's no place, I always tell young folks who ask me about it, there's no place you're going to get the level of responsibility quickly as you do in federal service, right? And, and yes, yeah, sometimes things move slow. It's supposed to move slow, right? We talk about the reasons for that, too. But there's, there's really no other industry, maybe some startups you might get this experience, but really where you can be in the middle of mission space, whether you're passionate about the environment or national security or health care, you know, public health, and you're going to get in there quickly 
Um, and you're going to get in the mix and get exposure, experience, and opportunity for impact that's really unlike any other career. Perfect. Well, thank you, Sasha, and thanks to everyone for listening. I'm Shane Canfield, and this has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. Talk to you next time. Reconnect with a carpool or vanpool. Even if you're commuting just a few days a week, Commuter Connections can match you with others that live and work near or at the same place as you. Prefer taking the bus or train? There's never been a better time to reconnect with transit. Plus, you have the added comfort of knowing Guaranteed Ride Home is there for any unexpected emergency for free. For more options, visit commuterconnections.org or call 1-800-745-RIDE. Some restrictions apply.